I think we should. Uh, this is. Uh, I think we should do a bit of a game of uh, who's the who's met the most famous person here. All right. So uh, uh, you've got to have not just seen them or been in the same place. You've actually got to have like met them. Uh, you know, don't have to be best mates, but have met them. Who's met a famous person? Who can share? Yep. You met Cozzy. All right. <laughs> All right. Can we can beat that? Who else has met someone? Oh, he's famous in Holland. He's big in Europe, as they say. All right, that's good. Anyone else? Yep. Kevin Rudd. All right. There we go. Who's Kevin Rudd again? That's right, he was the Prime Minister. Uh, yes? Bishop Desmond Tutu. Bishop Desmond Tutu. Oh, is that, is, that the new, is that the new high? All right. Can someone be... You think Hugh Jackman, Desmond Tutu? Okay. Anyone else? Okay, Kate Miller High Key, all right, it's got credibility. Everyone's like, ooh, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Anyone else? Yep. Jesus. Oh. <laughs> they get zero points for being too obvious. Uh, anyone else? Anyone, anyone met someone really famous? No one met the Queen, the Pope? Yep. Your grandparents met the Queen. <laughs> Awesome. Well, that counts. All right. You're the winner. Hey, Ben's the winner because he's met Jesus. Awesome. Well, uh, last week, uh, who was here last week? Uh, for those who were here, uh, John uh, preached um, and, uh, and I stitched him up a little bit. I'd spent, three, I'd spent three messages preaching one chapter, Romans 8, and then I gave him one message to preach three chapters, <laughs> Romans 9 to 11. But he did a pretty good job. Uh, it was a little long, but uh, uh, I think John's going to preach long every time, isn't he, if you know John? Um, he, he was good, though, but uh, um, tonight, I guess, so last week I gave him three chapters in one message. Tonight I'm giving myself three verses. Uh, I think that's fair, um, because it is such a good passage that I think it's worth zooming in, in and some passages are just like, it's so worthwhile just really focusing deeply on a little passage. By the way, the little game about have you met someone famous had nothing to do with the message. It was just a little fun warm-up. So. We're going to read Romans 11, chapter 33 to 30, verse 33 to 36, uh, which is on the screen. If you have a Bible, you can open it up, but it's very short, and we'll just leave it up the whole time. Um, so here we go. Oh, the depths of the riches and of... I'll start again. It's so short. I've got to get this right. Verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him... And through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's it. That's the passage. So I'm literally just going to zoom in and just just go through this little bit by little bit. And that's going to be the message for tonight. Uh, But basically, um, uh, so we've been going through Romans now for something like six months And step by step, verse by verse, passage by passage, uh, the Apostle Paul has been presenting 
the gospel. He's been going through all of these uh, incredible concepts that I won't explain or mention them, but we've been explaining them bit by bit. Justification by faith, salvation by grace, uh, how we are now united with Christ and we're united in his death, but also now in his resurrection, how God is actually beginning to change us bit by bit. So this word sanctification, how we have freedom in Christ and how we have new life in the spirit. And then Romans 9 to 11 is actually one argument about how wrestling with this question about how the, the, the Israelites, the Jews were God's people, but the Gentiles weren't. But now the Gentiles have become God's people as well. And how does that all fit together? And Paul gets to the end of all of that. And it's kind of like the end of chapter 11, uh, verse 32, is the end of his presentation of the gospel. And he gets to the end of it, and it's kind of like the view from the summit. It's kind of like, uh, well, someone said this, like a mountain climber who reaches the summit of an Alps ascent, the apostle turns and contemplates. Depths are at his feet, but waves of light illuminate them. And there spreads all around an immense horizon which his eye commands. It's like Paul reaches the summit of the journey that he's been on. He's he's given us, uh, by the grace of God and by the Holy Spirit, the most amazing presentation of the good news of Jesus really ever written down in all of history about God's incredible plan to save people by his grace and he gets to the top and to the end of doing that and he looks around and he's so much in awe that he breaks out in song in praise and he just praises God in the verses that we uh that I just read out and uh I remember like the experience I don't know if everyone's climbed a a big mountain but when we were in Indonesia when I visited Hohidio I had the opportunity to climb the volcano there called Dukono and you climb up and it's hours and hours and hours of climbing and eventually you reach the base of the um, pointy bit of the volcano which is called a cone yep that's it and you climb up that and that is incredibly hard work because it's all made out of volcanic ash and so it's like climbing up a on it's like climbing sand dunes really and you get finally to the top. But before you get to the top and look in, you pause for a breath and you look around. And there before you is this incredible uh, view back down the bottom of the, the cone and then down the mountain and out to sea. And it's awe-inspiring. And really, that's what Paul is looking at here. But it's not a view of uh, a mountain range and down into a valley and out to sea. It's a view of the good news of Jesus. And it's so good that he breaks out in song. And he, sing, he gives what's known as a doxology. So this, this little verses, these three verses, or four verses, 33, 34, 35, 36, are known as a doxology in the Bible, right? Doxa means glory and logia means saying. So he speaks uh, glory, speaks of the glory of God. And so until now, Romans has been Paul's argument, his presentation of the gospel, And these verses are just not argument, but adoration. It's Paul just declaring uh, God's greatness. And I kind of want to ask, before I actually get into what Paul talks about, is when was the last time you entered that space? 
When was the last time you entered that space where you're just so blown away by the goodness of God, by the grace of God, by the, by the power of God, by how amazing it is that God's, God is for us and that He's saved us, that, that you've been saved by grace, that you just kind of like just want to praise Him. And, and it's, you don't just sing along. You know, you don't just sing along. You are worshipping. Now, hopefully, you've done that tonight. But it's possible that you just sung along. Because there's a, there's a difference between just singing along and worshipping out of a, just a completely uh, amazed and like gratitude to God. And uh, I remember, like, particularly, um, and it was awesome tonight with Marcus leading us. And I love your heart for worship, and that, that, that shines through. Um, I just remember particularly, uh, maybe a month or two ago, we had the choir here from Indonesia, and they did at night, they did their formal part, which was really beautiful, where they did their songs and testimonies. But at the end of it, like, they just got to, uh, you know, let loose with worship. And you could just tell, like, they'd been doing their formal choir part in lots of places, but there's not too many places where they just got to, like, completely just worship God. And you could just tell they were so eager to worship. And in fact, if you go to Hohidiites, one of the things that is evident is these people just, they just love worshipping God and they're just hungry for it. And uh, it's just really challenging and inspiring to be part of that. So anyway, I'm going to pray and then we'll, uh, we'll get into the, the actual message proper. Let's pray. So that, um, yeah, we pray, God, that uh, what I share about your character and nature might indeed inspire us, as your whole gospel hopefully inspires us to enter into that place where we just come before you and recognize uh, kind of, in a sense, our unworthiness, but, but, because, but also your great love for us, that um, you have just poured out this incredible blessing of grace upon us and that we might see your character and understanding who you are and who we are and yet we're in relationship with you and loved by you, that might just lead us to be people who, who want to just worship you, not just in song, but with our whole lives, uh, each and every day. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's have a look at this, uh, this verse here. Um, Paul starts out, Oh, the, oh, the depths, oh, the depths. And uh, he's, you know, I've talked about climbing mountains, but there's like the reverse analogy now he starts off talking about the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God and so like the what he's talking about he's trying to say is sort of like it's so deep uh, the deepest place on earth is those who know Mar Mariana Trench however you say it and um, you know when you take a submarine down into the depths um, you go deeper and deeper and the pressure builds up on that submarine and, and it's so hard to reach um, the full depths and you know sometimes we understand the nature of God or the love of God or the riches of God or the knowledge of God but it's kind of like you know when you plumb further and further down into the depths there's not a point where you don't keep discovering new things like when they send those submarines down uh, I was hearing a story about this they thought they would get to a point where there'd be no life right they thought they'd get to a point where life couldn't exist because of the extreme pressure. But as they went further and further down, they began to discover uh, new species 
that were really often quite unusual and bizarre and, and things they'd never imagined would be down there. Like the further they went, the more they discovered. And that's how it is with God. Like the more you go deeper into exploring God and discovering the depths of who He is, the further you press into that, uh, you don't hit a point where it's like there's nothing left there. Right? You've kind of, you've got it, right? It, there's more, believe me. Uh, I've been following Jesus now for, I don't know, since I was 17 and I've been a pastor for 15 years and I have not plumbed the depths of God's love and grace and, and the fullness of his character. There's always more to, to plumb into the depths. So, oh, the depths, Paul starts off saying, of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So I want to talk about riches because this word riches is a really powerful word. Um, it says... Uh, it says yeah, several times through Romans the word riches. Like in chapter 2, verse 4, he speaks of the riches of his kindness. Kindness. The riches of his kindness. And in chapter 9, it speaks of the riches of his glory. This is God's glory. And in chapter 10, it says, um, uh, as Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. And so there's the riches of his kindness and the riches of his glory and the riches of his blessing. Ephesians says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. So there's the riches in his kindness and in his glory and in his blessings and in his mercy. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And, uh, and then he goes on to say, although I am the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. And as a, as a preacher, I resonate with that. Like that, That's a grace I'm given, a grace to preach the riches of the, bound, the boundless riches of Christ. And so the riches of God, you know, like, our society is a society that loves riches, right? Chases riches. Uh, riches are important to our, our world. But um, the scriptures reveal that the world's riches um, ultimately are so often like fool's gold. You know, they promise so much, but are often so empty. But God's riches are not material riches, they're spiritual riches. And that's really the greatest treasure that you could ever discover, is to know the riches of God. Um, who knows the, the parable of the, of the sower, right? Does anyone know the parable of the sower? A few people. So it talks about how God, like it's an image of God sowing seed and it's, and, and it's like the, the gospel message going out. And it actually talks about riches in that. One of the, the seeds that says, says uh, some was like seed that was sown among thorns. It's people who hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and or of riches and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So there's some people who like they hear the word, but but riches, material riches, actually like the desire for that crowds in and like chokes out um, actually the, the, the gospel bearing fruit in their lives because the riches of God they don't capture how great they are. And the Bible says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, right? Now, that's a straight, interesting verse. That is not because God doesn't 
like those who are materially wealthy. Uh, sorry, it's not because God likes people who are wealthy less than people who are poor, right? God likes everyone equally. The only difference is that people who are wealthy are more inclined to hold on to their wealth as a, and wealth and riches and, and sort of like treat that as their treasure. Um, so, oh, the depths of the riches of God. Um, and oh, the depths of the, where are we up to? The riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. So I want to talk about wisdom now. Uh, so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it speaks all about wisdom. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And I kind of think this, this is really powerful to think about the wisdom of God because like, I think we live in an age where the wisdom or the intelligence of people, we kind of elevate our own cleverness pretty highly. And I think most people kind of put themselves uh, above God these days. Um, or they kind of think, hey, I don't, you know, I, I'm too smart. I don't really need God. I've got, I'm cool on my own. I'm all good. And so God's kind of place is, is, um, is limited. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called God in the Dock. And the dock meaning not like where the boat comes in, but um, the dock being in a courthouse, right? And his, his, his uh, thought was, and this is going back 100 years, I think it's only magnified, that in the ancient times, people imagined and, and respected that God was actually a judge and that we were actually people who would be judged by God. But his, his thought was, actually, we've reversed it these days where people imagine that their place is to be the judge. And so we put God in the dock and we decide if we think God is up to our standards and if he's doing enough good stuff for us and whether we think he's acceptable. And he wrote that, I don't know, when was C.S. Lewis around? 100 years ago? 50 years, 50 years ago? Where we, okay, I would say, okay. 70 years ago. All right, there's a bit of conjecture here about how long. I got in trouble then for saying he was around 100 years ago. Um, but how much more has it changed in the past 50, 60, 70 years? Like, and so it's almost as though we believe we've got the wisdom and we will uh, judge God. But oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Like, just think about God. The Bible, the Bible reveals this picture. We use two words to capture God, or three, but two particularly relevant to this. One is that God is omnipresent, which means that God is in all places at all times and has been in all places at all times through all of human history. You can get your head around that. We're trying to understand God and we think we can grasp God. But God is in all places at all times, through all of history. So God is here tonight. The fact that we believe God is here and present tonight does not mean that God is any less in any other church service that's happening right now. But he's not only in church services, he's down the street, he's in another country, he's in the Middle East, he's everywhere right now. There's nowhere you can go and it's like, I've escaped God. 
right? Don't play hide and seek with God. You will lose, right? <laughs> He'll find you really quickly because he's in all places at all time, you know? There's nowhere you can go to say, I'm, I'm going to go somewhere and get away from God. You know, I'm just going to, I'm hiding here. Pretty sure God can't find me. He was there before you got there, okay? So he's, omni- he's omnipresent, but he's also omniscient. It's a complex word which basically means God knows all things. So how many people on earth? I don't really know. Seven billion? Something like that? Billions. God knows and hears and discerns every single word that every single person speaks all the time. Not only that, he knows, hears and remembers and retains every single thought that every single person is thinking all the time. He knows the hearts of every single person. He knows their intentions. He knows that even if they say one thing and think another, that he discerns their thoughts and understands their thoughts. And he knows that for every single person through all of human history, that's our God. Isn't that pretty mind-blowing? That's incredible. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Paul's saying, whatever you think about God, whatever you've come to understand about God, whatever you've kind of grasped of God, there is much more to God than you think. God's riches, God's wisdom, God's knowledge is far greater than you have ever got your head around. No wonder it says in Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are are your ways my ways, declare the Lord's Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is like big. And we kind of think we can get our heads around God. We haven't got our heads around God in fullness. In part we have, but not in fullness. And so Paul goes on to say this in verse 34. He asks three questions. Who has known the mind of the Lord? What's the answer to that question? No one. one. Then he says, who has ever been his counsellor? That is to say, who has ever been the person to who God has had to go? And and, and this is not talking about counselling rather than like seeking counsel from someone wise. So it's saying, who has ever been the person who God has gone and said, you know, like, I might go and seek wise counsel from another elder in this church or from my father or, or, or from a really mature person say, look, I'm just wrestling with this and I can't get this figured out. You know, what are your thoughts on this? Right, I do that. Who has ever been the person who God has gone to and said, look, I'm just, I'm just a bit stumped with this whole running the world kind of thing. You know, kind of making the sun, you know, stay where it is, you know, because that's right, it's the earth that goes around it. Uh, I almost got that wrong. <laughs> You know, making it all happen. I'm just struggling. Can you give me some advice? Has God ever come to you and asked you that? Anyone here? No. So who has ever, who has ever been God's counsellor? Answer? No one. Last question. Or who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Answer? You're not really convinced of this. No one is the answer, Right? Actually, on that one, I've got to say, I come across people from time to time who believe they've given to God that God should repay them, right? This is how it plays out. 
someone goes through a really bad experience in their life, right? They go through an experience of unexpected suffering or loss. And they say to me, and I've heard this from multiple people, I have been giving my offering for years. I have been serving God for years. How could it happen to me? Right? I've been giving to God. So surely God's got to give me back in return. That's not why we give. It's not why we give. Who has ever given to God that, that God should repay them? The answer is actually no one. For what God has poured out to us and the blessings of God are incomparable to anything we give to Him. If I give to God my, my finances through offerings, which of course I do, uh, I'm only giving back to God what He has enabled me to actually possess in the first place. If I give to God time, I'm only giving to God the, out of what He has given me in the first place because every single breath that I breathe and every minute that I'm alive on this earth is a gift that's come from God. I'm only here because God led me to be here and I'm only here for as long as He uh, blesses me to be here. So every minute that I've got is, is from God anyway, so I'm only giving back to Him what He's given me. Any gift that I might possess is a gift that He's given me. Any skill that I've acquired is ultimately a skill that He's enabled me to acquire. As many skills that I haven't acquired, singing being one of them. But that's another story. Um, <laughs> I'm a really bad singer. I was just telling Marcus this story. At, uh, last weekend, I think it was, I went to a, a birthday party for someone, which was also their welcome to... They'd just become an Australian citizen. There's a couple of people who were here at that party. And I thought it would be really cool... Uh, at the end of singing Happy Birthday, because she'd just become an Australian citizen, that I would launch out with the national anthem and get everyone to join in, right? So I, I sort of teed this up with one other bloke. And because we were launching, I thought, right, I've got to go strong here and loud. And so I, I started out loud and I sang that national anthem loud and, and with great pride and volume and I carried that right through. And I got, got, got in the car and my wife is just like, what were you doing? <laughs> that was completely out of tune and you were just so loud and you just kept going the whole time. I was like, do you reckon, any, I was like, do you reckon anyone noticed? She's like, oh yeah, people noticed. <laughs> anyway, it's a whole other story. Who has ever given to God that God would, should repay them? The answer is no one. And then he concludes with this incredible uh, verse, verse 36, for from him and through him and for him are all things. Could there be a more comprehensive statement than that statement? Have a look at it. For from him, which means God is the source of all things. God is the source of all things. For from him are all things and through him are all things, which means that uh, he is the agent by which all things happen. Through him are all things and to him are all things, which means he is the goal of all things, that all things uh, are moving towards him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And in light of that, he concludes with these words, to him be glory forever. Amen. To Him be glory forever. Amen. 
That is, if you have captured the gospel, and if you have captured the character and nature of God, the only conclusion is to say, to Him be glory forever. Amen. It changes everything. It removes this whole me-centric way of living because I recognize that God is actually the center and the source and the beginning and the end and the purpose and the, uh, and the kind of everything. He's it. To God be the glory forever. Amen. So let me draw a conclusion, uh, three conclusions out of this for us. How does this apply to your life? Well, I'll say three things. Firstly, God is way bigger than you think. God is bigger than you think. And one of the things that's really problematic with our generation and Christianity is that in past generations, they had a different understanding of God. Past generations had an incredible reverence for God and actually a a fear of God, a holy fear of God. To some extent, um, they took that too far. Their view of God was a God of judgment and a God of wrath. And so people feared God in, in the truest sense of the word. Now, the problem with that is they probably missed the fact that God was a God of love and grace and God is relational, and we could actually know God. God was a distant, powerful, scary God. And what's happened is the pendulum has swung. And it's swung probably too far in that we have come to know that God is a God of love and a God who's relational and God, Jesus, is our friend and all that is true. But I think we have lost a genuine sense of the power and awesomeness and might and majesty of God. Uh, current generations, I think, see God as actually being way too small. Like, I've got at home a, a beautiful little labradoodle and, and called Harry. And every time that I want to hang out with him and play with him, he just wags his tail. He's so excited that I'm, that I'm there to spend a bit of time with him. And he's always up for a cuddle and a, and a hug and, a, and, you know, a bit of, a, you know, hanging about. And, you know, it's almost as like we've reduced God to being not much more than a puppy who's just excited when we want to give him a bit of attention, who's just always there, always friendly. And some of the imagery of God that, that I find very difficult, that it's almost as though God's this kind of, so that Jesus is kind of this guy who just wants to, just kind of give you one of those awkward hugs that goes on a little bit too long. And, and he's just, he'd just be like rubbing the back and he's just always there wanting to embrace. And I don't want to like, I don't want to miss the fact that God is relational and is loving and, he, and his, his embrace is there. But we, we miss God if we miss the fact that God is actually a God who we should be in awe of. And at the, at the young adults camp, it really was interesting to me that Mike, um, Mike Mills, the speaker, quoted C.S. Lewis from Narnia. And it was, a ver- it was a passage that really stood out to people. I think because of this reason, that we'd somehow missed how big God is. And here's the quote. Speaking about, uh, it's, it's a bit of a weird one if you don't know Narnia, but Aslan is a lion in this story. It's a, it's a kid's story, but it's actually a story about Jesus. So Aslan is a lion and represents Jesus. And that's the main thing to note. Um, so Lucy is, is uh, about, to, they're about to meet Aslan, the lion, Jesus. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan? 
A man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the, is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is, is he quite, quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either brave, braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tell, tells you? Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. God is not safe. Have a listen to this from, from Revelation chapter 19. I saw a heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself and he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Boys and girls, if you do not have a Jesus who you understand is the bloke who, you'd, who would, you would want to have leading you into a battle, you've got a wrong view of Jesus. Because I reckon most of us have got an image of Jesus that he'd kind of just be there wanting to hug everyone. No, he, he wants to go into battle and he will go into battle. He's also a God of incredible grace and mercy and love. His God is bigger than you think. His ways are unsearchable. His wisdom beyond comprehension. And he is always good and gracious and loving. Maybe you need to rediscover how great is our God. Secondly, uh, I reckon we should live boldly because victory is the Lord's. And, you know, being a Christian in Australia today or a Christian maybe on a university campus or, or a Christian, you see the place of God and, and how maybe he's mocked by the media or uh, he's belittled by people or he's minimised or, or whatever. You see all this stuff and, and you think, well, is God really that big? And let me tell you, God is bigger and God is greater and God is in control and God will be victorious over all of the stuff we see today. God is victorious and will be victorious. And you know what? Christianity for 2,000 years has been persecuted and Christians have struggled and Christian, Christianity has been under threat and under attack. Uh, it is resilient beyond all of that because it is the church of Jesus. And so it overcomes and thrives even in persecution. Someone, uh, I was reading a, a, a thing, we'd had a prayer meeting here, and people had written all these little quotes on butcher's paper. And someone wrote a quote, 
and I, I don't know who it is, so it might be someone in the room. So I, 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 you have to claim it if, if it's you. Um, but they wrote this on that, that uh, butcher's paper. Don't tell God about your mountain. Tell your mountain about your God. Did anyone here write that? No, someone else. Don't tell God about your mountain. Tell your mountain about your God. Because here's the deal. We come across a problem and we go to God and we're like, Oh God, I've got, this, I've got this giant mountain in front of me. I've got this problem. I need your help. You know, God, do you think you could help me out with this problem? Maybe we need to go to the problem in prayer and say, Problem, mountain, I have got a big God on my side. You should quake because God is bigger than you are and God will overcome. You see the difference in perspective there? You know, pray in faith that God is bigger than your mountain. Show a little courage to live out your faith with boldness. Thirdly, uh, I want to say this. You can trust God in uncertainty. Because despite, despite God being big and enormous and powerful, life in this uh, fallen, sinful age before God, Jesus returns and, and all things are made right, is full of uncertainty and struggle and difficulty and problems and God's plan often seems so incomprehensible and we think well, is God at work is God even present is God even doing something but actually we can keep God trusting God even in uncertainty I spoke about when we had the choir here two months ago I was amazed by the story of one of the guys that shared his testimony a guy named Tison awesome guy but Tison was a guy who grew up in a Muslim village on an extremely remote island in Indonesia, in a, in a fishing village where probably no one in his village had ever left that island, let alone travelled overseas, and he's growing up there. Tison suffers, is uh, in an accident where he gets extreme burns. You know, we, we see Tison today, you can't appreciate the severity of his burns. His, his uh, chin was fused with his chest. And, uh, um, and he spent a year in extreme pain, no painkillers for a year, uh, because they didn't know how to treat him in that village. Where is God's plan in that? You'd say, it's just a mess. And yet, someone goes into that village and finds him and takes him to the organisation that we partner with uh, in Indonesia and they care for him. He's enabled to have operations, but he also hears about Jesus. And he becomes someone on fire for God. And that same person from that village ends up standing up here, sharing his testimony and touching the lives of Christians in Australia. In fact, travels around Australia with the team there and they, he shares his testimony. And so thousands of Australians get touched and hear about Jesus through him. You know, take his plan back to where he's in a room suffering in agony. You say, it's incomprehensible. Why on earth does this happen? But God has a plan and uses his story to change many lives. So you can trust God in uncertainty because his plan started at the beginning of creation and will end, uh, well, it won't end. His plan will carry on for eternity. And we're somewhere in that story. We used to sing a song, and I'm going to finish with that so the band want to come up. We used to sing a song at my old church and uh, it was a song based on the, on the words of the book of Job. 
who's someone who suffered a lot. And uh, song, the lyrics of the song go like this. Who can know the mind of our Creator? Who can speak of wisdom, of wonders yet unseen? Who can reach the heights of understanding to play the notes of wisdom's melody? Who has weighed the dust of every mountain? Who has walked the mysteries of the deep? Who has laid the earth on its foundation? And who conducts the waves upon the sea? And then the chorus would simply say, I stand in awe of you. I stand in awe of you. So glorious and true. I stand in awe of you. When we sang that song, I could guarantee every time I could look around and see people in my old church who would be weeping because of the problem they were in the midst of. They couldn't answer these questions about why God was allowing this to happen or where God was or what was happening or what would come out of it. But in the end, they were there also declaring this truth and they were, saying, uh, they were singing these words, I still stand in awe of you. I still declare how glorious and true I stand in awe of you. You are still an awesome God, even in the midst of what I'm going through. Do you need to make that choice to put your trust in God again? Do you need to choose to be a little bolder in how you live out your faith? Because the victory is the Lord's and because God is with you and he's the great God and yet he's with us in our daily lives. Surely we can live with a little more boldness in how we live out our faith. And maybe we need to remember that God is bigger than we think. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.